I thank God for all who have led us so wonderfully in worship today. And thank God to see all of you in the sanctuary and to have all of you joining us online too. We are in a sermon series called Advent Surprises. And today we're going to look at one of the classic Advent texts, Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. I'll read from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is, The Fruit of Repentance. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Two years ago, my car failed its safety inspection so miserably that I had to get a new car. So far, I like everything about the new car except one thing. At random times, the trunk pops open. I pull out of my house in the morning and suddenly a notification says, trunk open. I pull away from the church in the afternoon and suddenly a notification says, trunk open. I drive down a 
four-lane highway at 50 miles an hour, and suddenly a notification says, trunk open. Every time I have to pull over, get out of my car, shut the trunk, get back into the car, and continue driving. It is the strangest thing and rather frustrating. I thought about complaining to the dealership and asking them to fix it. I thought about contacting Honda's corporate offices to inform them that the lone flaw in their otherwise fine vehicle is that the trunk pops open haphazardly. I thought about how new cars across the board rely so heavily on temperamental automation systems that the entire automobile industry really bears a portion of responsibility for my trunk's malfunction. But a couple of weeks ago, after shutting the trunk yet again, I carefully inspected my four-button car key, which includes one button that opens the trunk. This car key was on the same key ring with my house keys and my church keys. And it occurred to me that perhaps sometimes the other keys on the key ring might nudge that trunk button on my car key, thereby causing the trunk to come open. So I decided to remove the car key from the key ring and let it fly solo for a while. Would you believe that since then, <laughs> my trunk has not popped open once. I was ascribing responsibility elsewhere, yet I had the ability to take reformative action the whole time. Humanity has a proclivity to externalize culpability. We blame the world's malfunction on someone else or something else. To be sure, systemic sin and the sins of other individuals corrupt the ecosystem and cause all manner of problems. But we point the finger elsewhere as if we don't contribute to the dysfunction of the system or the waywardness of the world, as if we bear neither fault nor responsibility to take amendatory action. Like Adam in the just-spoiled Garden of Eden. We point at Eve saying, hey, she gave me the forbidden fruit. That may be so, but we ate it. It's important to admit that many times life is user error. What if we need to adjust our ways to amend what's wrong in the world? What if we need to modify our practice to rectify the system's malfunction? What if the reparative change the world needs begins with us? changing. Enter John the Baptist. As crowds converge at the muddy Jordan 
John says, you brood of vipers. This is quite the sermon intro. Welcome to the wilderness, you children of snakes. You evildoers. You transgressors. You sinners. John is a fiery prophet who does not mess around with the pleasantries of politeness or the niceties of etiquette. He makes it clear as cellophane that everybody needs to repent and be forgiven. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, he adds, because claiming Abrahamic ancestry without enacting faith through deeds precipitates only a firestorm of judgment. The axe is lying at the root, ready to fell every tree that does not bear good fruit. Trees, we might note, don't talk. They just produce. That's what John demands, the fruit of actions that authenticate repentance, the fruit of behavior that corroborates belief, the fruit of deeds that substantiate faith. We might think Advent is a season for warm, fuzzy feelings and sweet hot chocolate by the glimmering holiday lights, but surprise, Advent is a time to repent. To repent is to undergo spiritual and moral reform beneath the sovereignty of God. More than mere remorse, more than just feeling sorry about sin, repentance is a transformation of thought and practice. Repentance is a metamorphosis of mindset and behavior. Repentance is an alteration of attitude and action. It is not to be reduced to a one-time event because repentance is a way of being. As Dana Schoonmaker says, we are called not to a repented life, but to a repentant life. We are ever reforming, always adjusting, constantly evolving, and the evidence is not our confession, but our conduct. Now, what then shall we do, the crowds inquire? They have discerned that repentance entails Doing something, doing something different, something new, something righteous, something holy. John answers, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. John adduces clothing and food, suggesting we donate half. This is not to jettison all of our basic resources and thereby impoverish ourselves, it is to divest ourselves of surplus goods for the benefit of neighbors who are destitute or disadvantaged. Sounds like John is echoing Isaiah 58, which says, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked 
to cover them. Sounds like John is echoing Ezekiel 18, which says the righteous man does not oppress anyone, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment. In any case, the prophet gets practical. If you have two winter coats, give one to somebody with none. If you have two bags of food, give one to somebody without food. I know a Christian woman who determined that every time she went to the grocery store to get food for her family, she would also buy a grocery store gift card to give to someone in need. She did this for years. That's the fruit of repentance. The tax collectors also asked John, what should we do? Now, tax collectors were widely despised and generally regarded as scoundrels. They were in cahoots with the occupying Roman government and made their living by exacting more tax revenue than was necessary. So John said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Strikingly, he does not command that they resign their unscrupulous profession, but rather that they operate ethically within it. Of course, this would diminish their bottom line. In fact, without collecting extra revenue, it's unclear how they could continue to make their living as tax collectors. But John was less concerned about professional success and more concerned about spiritual righteousness. John was less fixated on profit margins and more fixated on prophetic wisdom. John was less interested in the prosperity of the haves and more interested in helping the have-nots get some relief from the oppressive taxation industry. We later encounter a wee little tax collector named Zacchaeus who exemplified John's demands to give away half and stop over-collecting. When he came down from the sycamore tree in Luke 19, Zacchaeus proclaimed, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anybody of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. That's the fruit of repentance. Next came the soldiers, too, asking, What should we do? The authority and armaments of soldiers afforded them ample opportunity to extort the populace, which they evidently did with some regularity. Bible scholar David Garland explains, they could bully others and confiscate property to supplement their meager provisions or salaries. So John says to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. For ancient soldiers to treat the hoi polloi righteously and respectfully would have marked noticeable social change indeed. No more blackmail, 
No more harassment. No more intimidation. No more shaking people down. We later encounter a soldier in Luke 7. A Roman centurion who loved the common Jewish folks so much that he built their synagogue for them. That's the fruit of repentance. Socioeconomic systems induce us to dehumanize people, to treat them as cogs in the machinery of society rather than sacred beings created in the image of God. But the gospel transforms individuals, businesses, and societies by activating repentance. The repentance John preaches leads to honest and upright dealings with others and to vulnerable populations being treated justly and compassionately. While repentance is often associated with sorrowful prayer, somber fasting, or ascetic self-abnegation, repentance here involves our professions and our possessions. It affects our closets, our pantries, our finances, and our workplaces to produce personal and social righteousness. Notice how John correlates personal repentance with social ethics. Notice how he connects personal faith with social action. Notice how he combines the transformation of individuals with the rectification of society. You see, many Christians prefer either a personal gospel or a social gospel. But the actual gospel changes persons and societies, souls and systems, individuals and institutions. Today we find ourselves in a world where the trunk keeps flying open, where malfunction, dysfunction, and misfunction are ubiquitous. Many of us want governments, organizations, systems, and other people to change. They need to repent. Yet the firebrand in the wilderness will not permit us to disavow responsibility or outsource repentance. He insists that we ourselves undergo spiritual and moral reform beneath the sovereignty of God so that we can embody and effect the transformation God desires for the world. We may have heard the adage, be the change you want to see in the world. But John calls us to be the change God wants to see in the world. God does not want people to go hungry or unclothed. God does not want people in positions of power to mistreat persons with less status. God wants justice in social relations, righteousness in economy, so everyone has the resources necessary for a life of dignity. This message, of course, poses a direct affront to our sinful human nature. 
in which we fixate on our own needs, concentrate on our own comforts, and maximize our own worldly pleasures, often at the expense of others. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr wrote, Man will always be imaginative enough to enlarge his needs beyond minimum requirements and selfish enough to feel the pressure of his needs more than the needs of others. Therefore, the degree of difficulty for a deep dive into repentance is considerable. Indeed, there's hardly a more concrete indication of trust in God than to sacrificially divest ourselves of excess in order to help others obtain the basics. Still, if we trust that God desires everyone to have food, clothing, shelter, and dignity, and if we trust that God is plenty able to take care of us without the full surplus in our storehouse, then we can bear the fruit of repentance. Some years ago, I learned of a ministry that was working with refugees arriving from various parts of the globe. Since these refugees were resettling in a foreign land with very little money and virtually no social network, they were among the most marginalized people in the community. Several of them were able to secure job opportunities, but since their workplaces were not near a bus route, they had no transportation to or from work. For this reason, the ministry began requesting donations of used cars so that they could be gifted to the refugees. I kept thinking about John the Baptist. If you have two coats, give one to someone with no coat. If you have two bags of groceries, give one to somebody without food. I went to a deacon's meeting, gave my pastor's report, and at the end, I told the deacons that a local ministry needed donations of used cars so that recently resettled refugees could get to and from work in order to support their families. I asked if anybody had a car they might donate. Nobody responded. But that night, a young deacon went home and spoke with his wife. They were a basic middle-class couple with two young children in the house and two cars in the driveway. And I later learned that they gave one of their cars to the refugee ministry. That's the fruit of repentance. In the final analysis, bearing fruit not only adheres to John's preaching, it also anticipates Christ's coming. You see, John's message was preparatory. His baptism was preliminary. His ministry was provisional. One who is more powerful than I is coming, he said. Oh, yes, 
And the way to get ready for Christ's advent, the way to prepare for Christ's arrival, is to be the change God wants to see in the world. To live a repentant life. To undergo spiritual and moral reform beneath the sovereignty of God. We see the need for change all around us. But John shows up and says, Surprise! Holy change begins with us. Amen.